1986, a woman is found murdered in Texas. Police are unable to identify who she is. Decades later, as a serial killer sits on death row, he offers the clues to her identity that help open the case. But is what he tells investigators enough? This week, we explore the story together and what we know about her. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by Emmy Award-winning reporter Janae Coakley. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. So I was wondering, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a little bit now. Are there any of the cases that we've covered so far that you can't stop thinking about? Hmm. So there are definitely parts of cases I can't stop thinking about, like the whole thing that we touched on on the, I think it was the Long Island. The Laddingtown Jane Doe. The Laddingtown Jane Doe, where um, some of the serial killers are dividing bodies and burying parts in different locations. That kind of like disturbs me all the time. And then there's just some of the girls that I think about all the time. Like I think about Girly Chew a lot and I think about Teresa Bear a lot because I feel like they just fall into that space where I feel a little protective of them because people might think that they were being naive when really I don't think they were. I think they were just living their lives and terrible things happened to them. So yeah, there are things that I think about all the time. Um, but the, yeah, the divided up bodies, like that's not necessary. That's like not that killing is necessary, but like, do we need to bring it that far? Do we need to go that one extra step in making it even more disturbing than it already is? No. That's my answer. No. <laughs> that, that was an answer. <laughs> is it too much of an answer? No. Okay. Okay. Um, so I was thinking about this question because we were recently invited to a university to give a talk about filmmaking and true crime and writing and all the things that we do. And one of the other guests who was there is Karen Binder, who is part of the Investigative Genetic Genealogy Certificate at Ramapo College. And she asked me, um, what are the cases that I can't stop thinking of? And like, you know, that's like a complicated question because the answer is like all of them. Right, all of them. And there might be parts of some and then parts of others that resonate with you. So there's always like a little bit of each, right? Right. I mean, I, I always like describe this as like, I feel like, as soon as I hear one of these stories that like for the rest of my life, I'm kind of carrying those stories with me and those women with me. But like, that's a more complicated answer. But like the quick answer would be the case that we're talking about today, just because it frustrates me so much. So today's episode is actually really complicated because it kind of goes against a lot of the stuff that we've already established with this podcast and how we want to tell these stories. And I hate that it does. So I'm not going to like this story at all. No. I don't like any of your stories, but I mean, I'll really not like this one at all? No, because like, you know, one of the things that we've been working really intentionally towards, and I know this is largely symbolic, but like we don't mention the serial killer's name, and we're not going to today, but we also work really intentionally towards centering the woman's story. That's always hard with an unidentified person's story. So like, that's what we're talking about today. And the only reason we know anything about her is because of what a serial killer said about her. And so 
it's impossible to separate the two in order for me to be able to tell you anything about her. So basically her whole identity as we know it is based on what her killer tells us. Yes. That's depressing. That is incredibly depressing. And so we're actually going to talk a lot more today about what the serial killer did and to help contextualize her story. But yeah, it's really frustrating in order to like talk about her. We have to do that. I can see how that would feel bothersome. It's almost like he owns her even now. Right. Which is not what we want. Yeah. So we're going to start with the basics of the story. On March 26, 1986, a woman is found shot to death in an abandoned farmhouse on Wycold Road, which is east of San Antonio, Texas. Even today, this road is pretty desolate. It's narrow. There's a lot of fields bordering it on like one half, and half of it now has some housing developments that kind of branch off from it. But those are newer, and they wouldn't have been there in 1986. So it's like this quiet road. And so it's really not surprising that when her body is found, it's estimated that she was there for anywhere from three weeks to three months. They can't tell the difference between three weeks to three months? We always think that these are like exact science Mm -hmm. things. There's like a lot of factors that would come into play. And so it is a really broad range, but that's kind of the time frame we're falling in. And as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of information or even coverage of her case released at the time. There's some bare details that are available even now. We know that she's a black woman somewhere between ages 18 and 30. Again, that's a huge range. Exactly. And that she was quite tall, possibly between 5'10 and 6 foot. That sounds like it would be um, something that you'd be hard to not know who that is. Right. Like at that height. It's, It's a remarkable height. Exactly. For a woman, so... Yeah. They discovered that she'd been shot four times and left inside this farmhouse. And this lack of information is really frustrating to me, but at this point of covering stories of missing and unidentified women, it's really depressingly not shocking or surprising. She's a black woman found in the 1980s in Texas, and her story doesn't really go much further than there. I feel like from all of the conversations that we've had, that she's exactly the kind of case that wouldn't have gotten much coverage. And it's sad to say that, but it sounds like the media wasn't caring so much to not mention anybody who wasn't white and notable, like of a notable family or something like that. And at this point, she's unidentified still. So, mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of where her story takes a pause. And we're going to have to go switch completely over to more of a serial killer story and kind of get back to her at some point in this. So the man who ends up being her killer, we're not going to say his name, even though that's going to feel a bit silly because a lot of our listeners are going to immediately recognize who he is, but that's just our standard practice. So in the 1970s, there's a man who is from Mexico, and he begins crossing the U.S.-Mexico border with some regularity. He's going for employment reasons, and part of how he is traveling around is by hopping on trains and catching rides on trains. This is actually really common. It's much more common than we actually know about, and tons of people do this on a regular basis. And it's because, like, you can get where you need to go relatively quickly. While doing this though, he discovered how easy it would be to break into homes or steal cars 
that are like along the rail lines. And that's because it could be committed quickly and he could get back on his way quietly and anonymously by jumping back on a, another train. Okay, so he's this chain jumping house robber at this point. At this point, yes. In 1979, while he's breaking into a house, he brutally assaults the resident there who's an 88 year old man. He is actually captured for this, arrested and convicted of the crime of assault on this elderly gentleman. And he is sentenced to 20 years in prison for this. Shouldn't the story end there? Really? No, it doesn't. You know, so it's 1979. We know he's got a 20-year sentence. Technically speaking, if he serves his full term, he should be out in 1999. While he's in there, he sort of settles into some beliefs. One, he becomes quite fascinated by another serial killer, this one an American serial killer who's kind of in the news at the time. And one of the things about this other serial killer is that he doesn't have a set victim type, meaning, you know, he's not targeting, you know, young women in their 20s. He kind of has a broader range of ages and races and genders. And our person that we're talking about, he becomes fascinated with this. So he went into prison, a robber who assaulted one person, and now he's becoming a super fan of a serial killer. Yeah. Mm, gross. Yeah. I mean, he is not the only person who is kind of deeply invested and engaged with this person. It's just layers of ick to mm -hmm. me. The second thing is, is he really also settles into some political and religious beliefs. He becomes like a huge supporter of the Libertarian Party. He also becomes more religious, particularly in the Christianity vein. And both of those kind of inform his, his worldviews. So not saying Libertarians or Christians believe these things wholeheartedly, but like he becomes deeply invested in being anti-abortion and also he's homophobic and he begins to see himself as kind of like an emissary from god yeah okay so he's not he's not doing religion right it sounds <laughs> he's taking it one step further right or 10 steps further yeah and going into uh a different place with that yeah i i really bring these up because these particular worldviews are going to shape what happens next particularly the part where he believes that he's sort of like mandated by god in some way there's some places where like it says that he believed to be half kind of like avenging angel half person i think that there's a lot to be said there but like essentially he believes he's like very justified in these worldviews right it's just still not your typical thought process i think no so in 1985, he gets out of prison. And if you want me to do that math for you, that means he serves six years of his 20-year sentence. So I feel like all of the things that are you're about to tell me would have been prevented if he would have just stayed in prison for his full 20-year sentence. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of like personal thoughts about prison and how prison works and if it works. But in this case, specifically, a lot of things would have been changed if he'd in prison. On the other hand, part of what is happening here that I didn't mention because I don't want us to necessarily feel any sympathy for this person specifically is that he is also experiencing like sexual assault and abuse in prison. Okay, which is 
never good. And I do feel sympathy for him on that, especially since at this point he is not a killer. No. But he does really admire killers. So it's it's hard to have a ton of sympathy. But this, those things should not be happening to him. Right. So when he gets out, he goes back to traveling the U.S. He's mostly moving between the U.S. and Mexico. And one of the things that people know about him and his story is that he uses a wide range of aliases. So he's traveling under different names. Like, you know, he might be stopped by immigration and give them, like, the wrong name. Like, so he is known by a lot of different names. That is part of what's going to make it hard to track him later on. But this is a small detail that seems rather unimportant in his history, but plays a role later on is that in June of 1986, he's arrested in Laredo, Texas by immigration and naturalization for traveling with a fake U.S. birth certificate. And for this, he is sentenced to 18 months. From there, his life is pretty fluid. He's still traveling around the U.S. and Mexico. But in 1997 through 1999, he commits a series of murders that sort of increase in succession. So they are more widely spaced apart and then they're happening much more frequently close together. So 1997 through 1999. Right. So this two-year period in the late 90s. The first really known case happens in 1997 and it's a vicious attack on two students who are attending the University of Kentucky. Chris and Holly were a couple who had gone to a party and had sort of drifted away from it so they could kind of catch up. They decide to head back to the party and walk along the railroad tracks and encountered the killer there. They're tied up. Chris ends up being hit in the head with a rock. Holly is brutally assaulted and ends up surviving. Do they Chris both survive? Oh, Chris does not. No. Okay. Now, going back to like when he was in prison and, and having this like epiphany that he's this angel on a crusade, how would attacking two college students fit into that? Yeah, you know, for a lot of the crimes, he ends up using some justifications for why he felt that those people should be targeted. I'm not necessarily certain what happened in Chris and Holly's case, but one of the things that is kind of true about what he does is that most of his murders actually are murders of opportunity. So it happens to be someone in a place where he happens to be at that time exactly so it's not justified by his beliefs at all yeah so later on he'll like kind of squirrel his way around to creating some sort of justification but like honestly he is a killer of opportunity most of the time or all of the time he is using also weapons that are found in the area so with chris it's a rock you know for other victims it's like an item that's in their house or laying on the ground nearby. So he's not like bringing weaponry with him. He's just using what is available. And so what happens is really murder after murder in different states, but kind of all along rail lines. Like the serial killer he idolized, it's a wide range of ages and races and genders. So that kind of seems to be his pattern. These crimes take a while to link because they're located across several states, but eventually police hone in on him as a suspect. And the idea of like the mobile serial killer or spree killer, he's called both, is absolutely terrifying. Wait, back it up for a minute. Mm -hmm. So what, 
Okay, we are always familiar with serial killer, but what is a spree killer? So spree killer is someone who, you know, what they say about like serial killers is like there will be like a, a killing and cooling off period. So like someone will be murdered and then there will be like some downtime and someone else will be killed. A spree killer is kind of like more quickly in rapid succession. And so he's been called both. I think serial killer more aptly fits what's going on. But at the time, what investigators knew is like kind of these rapid crimes one right after another. That's why they, I think, initially were thinking spree killer. I'm always learning something that I don't feel I needed to learn, but thank you. Yeah, glad those things exist in my head. So he's pretty mobile, which is not necessarily the case for a lot of serial killers. And so the idea that like at random, these communities along rail lines or houses along rail lines are at risk, like people became incredibly afraid once they kind of this story starts hitting the news. And he's named the FBI's 10 most wanted list, which actually bumps Osama bin Laden down the list. And if you're like a child of the 90s, like that would have been incredibly shocking to learn. Which I am, and it is shocking. So authorities are like, we know he's traveling by trains. They start to really focus in on this and stop trains to look for him. They're looking at routes across 23 states. And this is the first time in roughly 100 years that the Union Pacific Railroad was so heavily involved in a search like this. The previous one was Jesse James. Really? Yeah. And when was Jesse James? That would have been quite a while. Right. So like they hadn't had to deal with something like this and to be so actively involved in a, a search for for someone. Um, this also raises concerns, though, for immigration advocates, because it also feels like they're just targeting anyone who happens to be or look Mexican. So plenty of people who are, are using those to get from place to place in employment and who, you know, may not have entered the country through legal means, like they're being harassed and it's making it unsafe for those individuals to get where they need to go. And so like this becomes like a really like complicated thing in this hunt for this one guy. I can imagine that being a huge problem. Yeah. But um, a spokesperson for the Union Pacific says there's an urgency to this that everyone is aware of because the killings are getting closer and closer together. We'll be back in a moment. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hi, 
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Finally, authorities are able to work with the killer's sister to arrange for him to turn himself in. And he walks across the bridge that connects Ciudad Juarez with El Paso in kind of a prearranged meeting with authorities. And he is arrested. How did the sister and the authorities end up, like, uh, putting this all together and knowing to talk to each other? So they knew who he was, right? And his name was splashed across newspapers. He was aware that police were looking for him and authorities were looking for him. And so they were able to find his sister who was living in New Mexico. And, like, basically, I believe a Texas ranger went and, like, spoke to her at length and told her about the pressing need to get her brother to turn himself in. And so she was in communication with him and was able to arrange that. I didn't realize that we had an ID on the guy. So he'd been arrested before, right? There were, you know, there's evidence at the crime scene. Okay, so they just put it all together from his record. Yep, and there, it takes a while to kind of link all these cases together because it's across different states. Right. Yeah. Okay. So when they arranged this with his sister, he just willingly showed up and turned himself in? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that seems pretty shocking because we would be expecting sort of something more dramatic, but no, there's like that moment of him just walking across this bridge to turn himself in. Um, I think the media attention, the increasing pressure, all of that kind of helped to make it very clear that there had to be like a resolution of some sort. Okay, so he shows up and mm-hmm. he's arrested. From there, you know, kind of really quickly, but he faces a murder charge for the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton, who he had murdered in 1998 in Texas. And he is sentenced to death specifically for her murder. So she's the one where he found they found the most evidence of it being him? So, you know, they're We've talked a little bit about this before, like how come they don't face charges or go to court for all of the different crimes. This seemed like one that they could easily charge him with and convict him on. Once he's in prison, he begins to open up about what he remembers and what he believes. And many of the murders, like I said, he's justified from his political and religious perspectives. So for instance, he thought that Dr. Benton was an abortion provider. And so he felt justified in murdering her for that reason. Was there any truth to that? No. She was a pediatric geneticist and researcher. So she was actually working closely to like help families who were experiencing pediatric issues. 
Okay. So he's he thinks he's justified and he's actually not doing his research and he's not justified in any of it. It's kind of... Right. Like, you know, he creates these scenarios in his head. And, and of course, whether or not she was an abortion provider, like... Right. It's just... Right. Like, it's not some individual's job to to do that right we don't we don't go around killing people based on their profession right um so others you know other crimes he would say oh he believed that they were gay and that's why he murdered them so there's like all these layers in which he's created in his head these scenarios to help explain it which is also why i hate talking about serial killers because we enter in these like conversations about like why they felt justified like i don't right i don't I just feel like that, like your your thinking wouldn't be straight at all if if you're going around just guessing who you think is a justified killing and who is not. Like it it doesn't make sense. No killing makes sense, but like you can't just guess on those things. Right. I mean, like I think you know. Yeah. Again, I I don't really care to get into serial killers' heads or or think about it. And it's really because it's like entering this bizarre landscape where like why do I have to engage with their like kind of worldview or what they think? And so like we're talking about it today and it just it's like icky and all those things. It does play a role in a little bit, which is why we're talking about it. Okay. And why he's like constructed these beliefs because hopefully what he said might lead us to the identification of the woman that we were talking about okay yeah it's just so warped that i think it's hard to like it would be hard to make sense of it so there's no point in even trying right now in a lot of the cases he's relatively vague about a lot of things including timelines and locations and there's a lot of speculation about why this is and usually the assumption is one he uses drug and alcohol (laughs) so maybe that plays a role in his forgetting those things or Two, maybe he's just killed so many people that the details blend together. But I think like the consistent traveling plays a role. Like if you're not keeping track of dates consistently, in any case, it's easy to lose track of time. And if the locations you're jumping on and off trains are chosen at random, like it's going to be harder to remember where you are. So I'm not really necessarily surprised that he's not accurate all the time or he's vague about those details. But I feel like we've already kind of discussed that he is probably just not a very clear thinker to begin with. Right. But as he starts to talk to reporters and investigators, he reveals details about crimes that he has not been connected with. And in September of 2001, he sits down with a Harris County investigator for the district attorney and he confesses to a murder. And it's a confession for the woman who is found near San Antonio. Okay, so this predates his like spree yes those two years and that's why this confession is completely shocking because they thought they were working with that timeline of like 97 to 99 so this murder that's like 11 years earlier and this happened just one year after he was released from prison the first time yes so even his former defense attorney alan tanner says i didn't think he was killing people back in 1986 that's kind of a surprise to me did they find more between 1986 and 1997? Yes. And so that's why I'm like, okay. oh, he's definitely a, a serial killer. So what he says about the woman is pretty limited. But again, this is the only information that we have about her. So we're really seeing her through his eyes, which is, again, 
not what I wish I could be telling. So now it's 1986. That means he's recently got out of prison in 1985. And then we know that he was arrested in Texas of June of 1986. So the timeline matches up that he was in the Texas area. He says that he met this woman and her boyfriend at a homeless shelter in San Antonio and that he thought her name might be Norma and that she could be from Florida. Are there any Normas from Florida missing in that time frame? There's no no clear matches there. So is her name Norma? I don't know, right? Because we're dealing with this many years later. But it, this is like the information that he gives. He says that the two of them would often drive out to the kind of the area that she was found with his gun and go target shooting. So they were target shooting with whose gun? His gun. So he has a gun. So has he had a relationship with these people for some time? There's no timeline given, but like it seems like they kind of know each other. So that's why I'm like, why are you squishy and her name being Norma or not? But Right. They've been hanging out. He should know the name. Also, where's the boyfriend at this point? Not sure. But he and Norma would go out Turkish. So we don't even know that there ever was a boyfriend. We're going to get into that in a second. Are we? Okay. Yeah. So he claims that this woman practices Santeria. Okay. So that's his motive? Right. So obviously this doesn't mesh with his worldview of religions, right? He claims that there's several different claims, but he claims that she puts a spell on him. Oh my goodness. Okay. He says that on the night of the murder, they took his motorcycle or a motorcycle out to Converse. And along the way, she quote unquote disrespected him. Okay, so this is not, well, I mean, we already know it's not going to a good place. Right. So in either of these scenarios, like either if it's because he believed that she cast a spell on him or because he believed that she disrespected him, like we are now used to him offering up justifications for all sorts of things. And so they arrive at this place to go target shooting and instead he shoots and kills her and he leaves her body in the farmhouse. Okay. Do we know what kind of spell he put, she put on him? No. He's just like a spell. A spell. Oh a spell. Gosh. Okay. He also says later that he murdered her boyfriend. He seems to be much more vague about this man, but he says that Norma and the man were in fact dating and that the man was Cuban. He says he killed the man and dumped his body somewhere between San Antonio and Uvalde. His claim here is that this man practiced black magic... More excuses. More excuses. One thing, though, this man's remains have never been found. So the only note that we have of his existence is, I think, this killer's confession here. What is noticeable is that these fall outside of his later murders. Of course, they're quite earlier. But also that he shoots the woman with a gun, which is is different because most of the murders he commits later are using like implements that he finds around. But they did happen to be out shooting together. So could that kind of fall into that category right, she's too? There, he has something, etc. It's just convenience. Yeah. So one of the things that happens that this story actually opens us up to have a conversation about is the idea of false confession. So so could he be lying about this confession? Could he, though? Could was he? Was it known enough about this woman being killed and being found 
would he have known about it enough to make up the story? Right. So I want to talk a little bit about false confession because I think some of the history of it plays a role in how police are perceiving this. And there's a case I want to touch on a little bit later that all ties into this. So you would think with confessions, like this would kind of just wrap up the story and we would be good, we would know something and we'd be in the clear for identifying who her killer was. But this angle of false confession is really well covered in a podcast called Dead Man Talking, which actually focuses the full series on this killer. So if you want a deep dive into that, it exists out there. But to sum it up more briefly, false confession can happen in a lot of different ways. For instance, Vanessa, you or I could be brought into questioning at some point about a crime and we know that we didn't commit the crime, right? Right. I'm just unlocking a new fear for you here. Okay. So we think, I didn't have anything to do with it, but maybe I can answer some questions, help the police out, and be on my way. And so we don't think about things like securing a lawyer or protecting ourselves anyway because we know we didn't do it. But if police see us as a suspect, they're really looking to confirm our involvement. And so many people will end up confessing after intense investigations for a variety of reasons. So the idea of you falsely confess in this police setting for, you know, because of the pressure or because like you've been questioned for like a long amount of time or you're really hungry or like you just think I'll say it and then I'll be able to leave, right? So are they thinking he did that? No. <laughs> okay. But this this is the part that will play a role in a little bit. But when we're specifically talking about him, like serial killers or spree killers, the idea of what they do is intimately connected to notoriety. And that notoriety is tied to numbers. So it's believed in some cases this causes them to become false confessors to kind of inflate their numbers. What do you mean inflate the numbers? Right. So like this is the case of wanting to be responsible for a greater number of murders because your notoriety, your fame as a serial killer can often be tied to this kind of numbers game. So like you're being the best little serial killer you can be? Right. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes, like, there's the belief that, like, doing these confessions, it kind of breaks up the monotony when you're in prison. Like, you get out, you get to speak to investigators or reporters. Breaks up the monotony. It makes it fun. It's something to do. Or because you want to, if you're on death row, like, maybe delay the execution, as in, the killer is still talking, so we have to keep the killer alive so that we find out more information, etc. So when someone like this man confesses to these crimes, it's not necessarily just accepted at face value, but it's an interesting kind of angle. But in this case, the investigators accept this relatively quickly. The Bear County Sheriff's Department Sergeant Sal Marin says, there's absolutely no doubt in our mind, based on these unusual set of circumstances, that he is responsible for the death of this woman. And the reason he says this is because the killer knows details about her that only the killer and investigators would know. Details that weren't revealed publicly, including like the kind of clothing she was wearing. For instance, she was wearing a denim skirt and he knew this. He could also describe the layout of the farmhouse where her body was found and in what room she was found in. So it very much sounds like he, he did this. Yes. And so the 
case of who murdered her is closed, according to investigators. So that's it? Kind of. I I mean, I think this story is going to open up a little bit more than I want to talk about. The killer confesses to a series of murders. So that time frame that you asked about previously, they kind of fill in the blanks between 1986 and 1997. So he, in fact, had been murdering people during this time. His confessions led to the discovery of a body in Florida, and he was also deemed the killer in a Carl, Georgia murder where authorities had already placed charges against somebody else. Did that person get freed? Yes. Well, that was a good thing, I guess, from this awful story. Right. But we're going to take a turn into what is still going to be awful. So despite his confession in one murder, that confession isn't enough. And that's for the murder of a man named Daryl Kolhako, who was killed on June of 1998 in Houston. Now, this case is covered more closely in that podcast that I mentioned before, Dead Man Talking. But essentially, Daryl's wife, Diamantina, and her lover, Andreas Mascaro, were convicted in the murder of Daryl and are in prison. So they're still in prison, but this killer we're talking about today most likely did it. He confessed. He also, according to like an innocence project that is working on his case and also this podcast, there is ample evidence that he is the killer. Like he provided some details. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this because I think it's important people know about this case and know that just like a confession isn't enough sometimes. It's weird to me that it's not, but investigators claim that Diamantina and Andreas, their motive was a life insurance policy and, of course, jealousy because Diamantina was married to Daryl and Andreas is her partner. But both Diamantina and Andreas both claim that Daryl knew about their relationship and was fine with it. But unfortunately, Diamantina and Andreas signed confessions, which is why I brought up the false confession earlier. So the false confessions came from them, we think. Yeah, so they signed, they were handed written confessions. Diamantina says that she wasn't certain what she was signing. She wears glasses. She wasn't wearing glasses when she signed it. She thought it was something else and it was a confession. For Andreas, he speaks only Spanish. And though the confession was like in Spanish translated multiple times and it was kind of like a messy Spanish translation, he also doesn't seem to have the ability to read written Spanish. So, you know, his literacy level isn't there. And so he signed the confession, but they also said if he didn't sign it, that they would deport his family. So have these two been in jail since then? They have been in jail for this entire time, despite having this confession from the man that we were talking about. The man that most likely did it. I mean, that's my belief based on the evidence that I've been reading and thinking about. So I just really wanted our listeners to know about that case and to to think about it. Is there anything that can be done in a case like that? So it's really hard. So I've been working a lot so Vanessa knows this, but our listeners might not. I've been working a lot with the wrongful conviction stories recently. And, you know, in this case, it really needs kind of some pro bono lawyers. So I know that essentially they are working on Andreas's 
case because it was called to attention what happened to him and there's like a very good team working on that and honestly like I think it's a case of like if Andreas gets out then you know there's no case against Diamantina yeah okay so it is kind it is being worked on it is being worked on and yeah I think you know being aware that like justice isn't served unless the correct person is facing repercussions for their crime right so, but this leads us to, you know, kind of the end and conclusion of this story, which is usually you ask me at the end, like, what's my hope to solve this case? And we asked for information on this case and we have not received any. So I can't tell you what kinds of information that they have about her. Like, do they have access to, for instance, DNA for this to be solved through investigative genetic genealogy? So despite pleas from various groups to put a hold on his execution. There is even a two-hour delay on the day of his execution as the Supreme Court looked at kind of petitions to hold off his execution. The killer was executed, which means no one can go and ask him for more information about any of these cases. This is why when some when a killer like this is saying that they have more information, shouldn't we be yeah, trying I'm, to delay that? Shouldn't we be putting a hold on that? I think that there's like this been this huge reaction. So basically in the 1980s, there was a man who was arrested and ended up confessing to hundreds of murders that basically everyone who had an unsolved case would come in and talk to this man and he would, you know, inevitably confess to it. Like this was not backed up by any information that he gave. The dates would be like wrong like you know he would be in one place and provable that he was in a different location and they'd bring in this murder in a different place and he would confess to it so i think what happened and often this is used an excuse to not accept what killers are saying when they're on death row is like this is a prime example of the non-believability right but i think if you know you have a, a killer who ends up saying these things and you've got some proof then that needs to be investigated. Even um, in the podcast that I was talking about, they do an interview with Holly, who's the one known survivor of this man. And she says, essentially, you shouldn't necessarily believe him, but you shouldn't necessarily not, that those stories should be investigated. And I don't like giving voice to killer's words, but I'm going to read a quick quote from him because I think it's important. Um, so again, I hate giving voice to his words, but he says, nobody seems to be interested in these cases. One thing you can take back on this case, they can never prove one case that I've claimed that I haven't done. Okay, so he's claiming to not lie about these things. Right, because they had asked him about other cases and he did not confess to all of the ones that he was spoken to about. So it's not one of those cases of like, like we were talking about like a serial killer just being a show off at this point. He's actually giving them information, which is really disappointing in that by killing him, they essentially destroyed any evidence they have of these other two innocent, possibly innocent people that are sitting in jail right now. 
Right. And now, like, I have a lot of thoughts about the death penalty in specific, personally, because of that work that I've been doing in wrongful conviction storytelling. But when this man was executed, he addressed some of the relatives of his victims who were in the viewing room at the time. He actually spoke to them? Yeah. So what happens is there's two separate viewing rooms, one for relatives of the person being executed and one for victims families and he directly addressed those people and i'm not going to read those for word for word but he made a statement of apology and kind of a plea for forgiveness from them and when i think about this woman whose name might be norma i also think about how her family has been robbed not only of her not knowing what happened to her but ultimately also being able to make that decision for themselves whether or not, or how they wanted to experience that moment of his execution. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, Night in the Arms of the Two-Hearted Lover, read by Janae Coakley. Janae Coakley is an Emmy Award-winning reporter with more than 20 years of broadcast experience. She currently serves as SNY's lead New York Jets beat reporter. She's covered everything from Super Bowl, March Madness, Indy 500, and Brickyard 400. She has flown with the Navy's Blue Angels, skydived with the Army's Golden Knights, and has run more than 14 half marathons, including one in Easter Island. Night in the Arms of the Two-Hearted Lover Unidentified woman discovered March 26, 1986, near San Antonio, Texas, after Beckian Fritz Goldberg. The night is full of wolves, dear, and the angels are restless. Here, the dark slit of road unravels east of the San Antonio line. And my arms are a cavalry of precision, wrapped hard against your waistband. Between my thighs, your engine vibrates, dusk across the sky of exposed skin. And I roll my tongue around yours, because this is what you want. We rest cheeks against the sides of a farmhouse, like a giant beast we once remembered. Here we pray to the gods of transformation, hunters with metal and sacrifice. And you say you know the evil of magic woven round hoed earth. Beneath your startled hands you know the pulse of the shadows. In the distance the dark pull of a train heading north across the flats. And we both wail, thrashing against the passage. Here the night wings flit close to blood spilled on a Texas sand. And we hold open our palms because there's still a heart beating in the night, dear. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. My name is Bill Huffman. 
and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.